All right, everybody, you might want to make your last dash to the coffee or I see a little dessert still left over there. This is your last chance. You know, don't blame me if you fall asleep because you didn't drink enough coffee. Um, so good to see you all. We'll get started here just in about 30 seconds or so. Um, always, uh, I'm always amazed when people actually come back after I've after I've taught one lesson, so it's just uh, encouraging. Good, good, good. Well, you quieted down pretty quickly. That, um, that's amazing. All right, well, uh, we want to welcome as well our uh, online uh, community, which, uh, as Mickey reports to me, was a couple of hundred uh, in number last week. So um, lots of folks are uh, curious, it appears, at least for the time being, uh, around, about the Gospel of Mark. And I uh, hope that we uh, are able to keep up your curiosity as we um, make our way into uh, this Gospel. Um, you know, it warms my heart to see all these Bibles on the tables. I mean, this is amazing. I mean, Presbyterians are bringing Bibles, holy smokes, pretty, and on phones, so I mean, just put your phone out, even though you haven't looked at it, you know, that counts as a Bible, just, um, but that's so uh, nice, and, um, you know, who knows, we're going to maybe turn into a Baptist church here pretty soon with all these Bibles floating around, um, and I, I, I hope it, it, that becomes a very helpful way for you to get into this story of the Gospel of Mark. Um, I, I offered you a little homework last week. Um, did, I'm just curious to see if any of you had the opportunity to do the homework. Maybe I should ask, do any of you remember what the homework was? Um, anybody want to venture a guess on what the homework was? Pardon? Mark 1. Well, Mark 1. <laughs> Uh, that's, that's helpful. Uh, and uh, to listen to the Gospel of Mark in its entirety. Uh, I've heard stories about, you know, one spouse reading it to another spouse. Some of you took advantage of looking at uh, some of the YouTube videos uh, or videos that have um, the whole presentation of the Gospel of Mark. Max McLean, Alec McCowan. Um, are two, one, two examples of that. Um, that's, don't feel bad if you didn't get to that, but it may be something you might want to take advantage of at some point in time. It's worth an hour and a half to two hours it takes just to listen to um, the Gospel of Mark. Uh, my apologies, I, I alluded to this last week. Um, I, I wrote the small group questions for a small group discussion with every hope and expectation that I was going to get through the first eight verses of Mark. And, um, and I got through part of verse one. Um, so you, you met in small groups, and uh, many of you did, and had the chance to go through those questions that were based upon those eight verses. And I hope that wasn't too disorienting for you, and I trust that you read through 
the eight verses of Mark chapter one as the background for the, what those questions were. So uh, I've gone ahead and you know, took a leap of faith that um, we'll make more progress tonight than we did last week and, um, and, and um, put down some questions that I think will be germane to what we talk about tonight. Uh, let me see if there's any other business we need to take a look at. No, I think we're, I think we're good. So let me begin with a word of prayer and we will get going. We uh, open our minds and our hearts to you, O God, and pray that through your Holy Spirit you will speak to us through this word of God that comes to us through the Gospel of Mark. We pray, O Lord, that it will be a moment in which we encounter you in the way that you would wish us to be encountered, such that we perhaps will come to uh, discover more of who you are and more of what you wish us to be. So we pray that, um, we pray boldly enough that you might, through this study together, um, bring about change in our lives, such that we would experience uh, the good news. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So uh, just a couple of introductory comments before we uh, plow through uh, the first uh, many verses of uh, Mark chapter 1. You uh, will recall that we're really talking about this God who chooses to be revealed to us, that the, uh, the creator or the potter is seeking to be revealed to the creation, to the pot, as it were, and we're trying to um, patiently make our way through this journey of trying to grasp the nature of this three-dimensional God who is so much more than who we are. It speaks to us from uh, categories that are beyond our, our comprehension, and yet God chooses to humble God's self uh, to come to us first in the person of Jesus Christ um, and secondly by Jesus handing his message on to those who uh, uh, are tasked with the writing of the gospel and the sharing of the gospel, the, the witness of the gospel to uh, generation after generation after generation. So God does, you know, we all take this leap of faith to believe that God has chosen to be that vulnerable. God is a vulnerable God because God is willing to endure all of the mistakes and misinterpretations that uh, we as humans are prone to be about because we're human. We are, the, we are the pot, not the potter. We are the creation, not the creator. So we are going to get it right sometimes and we're going to get it wrong sometimes. Uh, but God nevertheless chooses to be vulnerable enough to us in order for us to at least get glimpses, uh, echoes of who God is uh, so that we can be encouraged and so that we can experience the good news. Remember we talked about the euangelion, which is the Greek word that in English we find uh, meaning evangel or evangelism or evangelical, evangel, uh, another way of saying angel or messenger, 
Good news is the good message. Good news is the, is the gospel. And we talked about in verse 1, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is how Mark's gospel begins, and we can't ever forget it because uh, there's a lot in the gospel that's not going to feel like good news. And one of the, the challenges, I think, Mark's gospel in particular gives to us is that you know, Jesus confronts us with the good news. And I guess it would not be unlike um, your doctor confronting you with the good news that she has a plan for you to become more healthy. She's got a plan for you to become more healthy. That's the good news that if you follow my plan, you are going to become more healthy. You're going to become, you're, you're going to feel better. You're going to be stronger. And, um, but, comma, but, but it means that you're going to have to live differently. You're going to have to, you're going to, have to create new patterns. You're going to have to take on new responsibilities. You're going to have to believe in me such that you can experience this good news. And um, I don't know, if you're like me, when I hear that, I don't interpret that as good news. Like, what do you mean? I can't eat this, I can't, you know, I've got to exercise, I've got to do this, I've got to do that. So the, the, the encounter with Jesus does not always feel like good news because Jesus is inviting us into, and, and in Mark's gospel, this is a theme we're going to continue to see unfold, that Jesus is inviting us into not a, 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 an assent to Jesus, like, okay, Jesus is trying to get our vote. He's walking around. He says, vote for me. We vote for Jesus, and we go on, for our, on our merry way. No, Jesus is, and we'll hopefully get to this, tonight, Jesus is going to say, follow me. Follow me. He's going to invite us into a new pattern, a new way of life. And that's not going to feel like good news sometimes. And so that's part of what we're going to be exploring as we make our way through, John, uh, through Mark's gospel is understanding and reminding ourselves, remember, remember, Steve, this is good news. This is good news. This is good news. It doesn't feel like good news, but it's good news. Uh, because um, if, it, if, if, um, if Jesus were here to tell us, hey, guess what? You already have it figured out. You don't need me. Then it would it would render the gospel bankrupt, right? It would render the gospel empty, right? Because if, you know, there's a lot of people out there that are out there to tell us what we want to hear. We spend a lot of time, don't we, on cable news and whatever, listening for people who want, we want to tell us what we want to hear. Jesus isn't around to tell us what we want to hear. Jesus is here to tell us the good news. And that is going to feel disruptive. Um, so, 
So with that in mind, uh, we uh, want to just, I want to point out a couple of things to be listening for when we are experiencing the good news in Mark's gospel. Number one is there's, um, in Mark's gospel, remember Mark is the first gospel, so one of the, I think, interesting things to do when we're studying Mark's gospel is to receive it as, as not just good news, but to receive it as first news. This is, this is like the, you know, the, the special announcement on the television. You know, we interrupt this program to bring you this you know, um, you know, special announcement. And you're like, whoa, really? Well, the gospel is the, sort of the first blush on the good news for the first century people, and it's, it's not complicated by any other written gospel. It's just the first of the gospels. And so we get to, if we can, put our minds in the position of saying, what would it be like if we read this gospel for the first time? What would, how, would we, how would we encounter it if this was the first picking up a brand new book and saying, huh, interesting, what's this? The gospel of Mark. Huh, never heard of that before. Let's sit down and start reading it. That's the experience. Now, albeit, as I said last week, these people were hearing this audibly. They were not necessarily reading it. But nevertheless, it was the first of the Gospels, first of the tellings of the good news. And to try to put our minds and say, what would it be like if we read this thing for the first time um, and, and, and encounter what, what God was doing in Jesus Christ and bringing to us uh, this good news? So what is, he, what is Mark trying to do? One of the first things he's trying to do is he's trying to teach us what is a Messiah. That, that, you know, Mark is writing this somewhere, as we talked about last week, 65, 75 AD, you know, as the world was falling apart and as the temple was crumbling and as the Jews were in, beginning the diaspora, being, you know, running to the hills, you know, they're, they're hungry for good news. And Mark is here to say, Messiah has come Messiah has come in the person of Jesus, and I'm telling you the story to help you to understand who Messiah is. What does, what does God's Messiah look like? Because there are all sorts of preconceived notions as to what the Messiah was supposed to be. The Messiah was supposed to sort of lead the revolt against Rome. The Messiah was supposed to sort of take his place as the, on the throne over all the kingdoms of the world. And the Messiah was supposed to lead armies and so on and so forth. Lots of different preconceptions as to what the Messiah was. Now Mark is here to say, well, guess what? We couldn't have been more wrong. Here's what Messiah looks like. Here's what God's Messiah looks like. And we're going to follow that. And what we're going to learn is that it takes a long time, it takes the entire story of Mark's gospel for, for it even to begin to dawn on people, this is what Messiah is? The Messiah really is this? Because it couldn't have been further from what people's conceptions of the Messiah were going to be. So we're going to listen for that. Because uh, Jesus is going to say things and then he's going to tell people, you know what, don't tell people I'm the Messiah. You say, why would you mind it? Because they haven't quite learned about the full um, measure of what Messiah is. And we don't, we don't learn that until after the resurrection. Okay? So that's one of the things we're going to be looking for. The second thing we're going to be looking for is um, uh, this question that gets um, 
there's a great struggle with over this question all the way through the story of Jesus, which is there are those who follow Jesus and there are those who oppose Jesus. Um, and, and what Mark is doing for us is he's, pull, he's sort of holding up this very human struggle when it comes to who, what do we do with this person of Jesus? There are those who say, hey, okay, I'm going to follow. I'm going to, I'm going to try to learn about who this Jesus is. I'm going to let Jesus take me wherever Jesus wants to take me. And then, then there are those who just want to sit and argue. Yeah, but. Yeah, I know you said that, Jesus, comma, but. Let, let me give you the prevailing uh, um, um, opinion to the contrary. And we're going to watch that over the course of the story. And what Mark's gospel is really asking us, and I think what, asks who, the, what the gospel asked that original community, was, which are you? Are you following? Or are you giving all the reasons for why you shouldn't? Hmm. So that's, that's part of that struggle with, is this good news? <laughs> or is this not good news? And, and if I'm not experiencing this good news, is that because, it's the, because of the news or because of me? Right? So we get, we, we'll get to a chance to think about that. Um, and, uh, and then finally, we're going to learn about what does following Jesus look like. Um, and uh, we'll be watching that through some of the people who make it their attempt to follow uh, Jesus. Um, so the beginning of the good news of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, um, is the beginning of a story that is still going. One of the things that I think um, we can lose sight of when we're reading a gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is that we hear this, okay, well, here's the beginning of the story. You know, in Luke, it's, you know, the angels visiting the shepherds, and that's how the story begins. In Matthew, it's, you know, the wise men and the star in the east and so on and so forth. And then we think the story ends, you know, in Mark, in chapter 16, where the women see the you know, empty tomb, and, and, and that's the end of the story. Oh, that was an interesting story. Close the book, put it away, be on with your life. No, in the Gospels, the beginning of the story is of a story that is continuing now. We're being invited to begin this story that is actually at work even now. And we have to ask ourselves whether we still feel we are in this story. That, that Jesus is still inviting us to follow him and we're seeking to learn more about what does it mean to follow him because we have encountered this story which began here but will continue on uh, throughout the course of our lives. And so we'll, we'll be kind of experiencing that as we make our way through this gospel. The gospel is a living story. It is not a story that begins and ends. It's a story that begins and continues. And we believe ultimately has its end when Jesus returns. And all of history finds its culmination. Okay, I'm actually going to go to verse 2 of Mark's Gospel. So I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles, and um, we're going to be kind of working our way through uh, hopefully the first 
dozen verses or so uh, and trying to get some momentum here and then we'll, um, we'll see where we uh, go from there when we come back next week. So, now I understand you all have different translations. Uh, I want you to know that I'm using the new revised standard version. Um, it is uh, a version that's about 30 years old or so. Um, others of you might have translations that go way, way, way back, maybe even back to the 17th century. Uh, the King James Version is an early 17th century translation. Uh, the New International Version is a translation that goes further back than uh, the New Revised Standard Version, though that, not that, that far ago. It's okay, whatever translation you have, I am just so glad you got one sitting in your lap. Um, and, and what you'll want to be hearing, listening for, is um, how the different translations sound. So you'll hear me recite from the New Revised Standard Version, and you'll say, oh, you know, the new NIV or the King James Version, whatever, they say it differently. That's okay. It actually makes it richer uh, because we're, we're hearing different nuances of the language. Back to that vulnerability of God. God, God has to so be revealed through human language, which is so diverse, right? Jesus spoke Aramaic. The, the faith, the, 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 his religious tradition was in Hebrew, and the story is written in Greek. And we are reading the English translation. So talk about how vulnerable God is, but he say, I have to submit myself to this variety of language and translation interpretation. And that's why we... we lean upon and trust that the Holy Spirit is speaking through all of this. Mostly, well not mostly, um, especially as we study in community, right? Because at the end of the day, part of the continuation of the story is that Jesus is calls together the community of disciples, the followers of Jesus, who come together to help each other to discern what is the Spirit saying. So thank God you are not reliant on me to tell you that this is exactly what the Spirit is saying. I'm up here as a teacher doing my best to sort of, you know, kind of pointing out a variety of issues that are found within the text of the Bible, but, you know, I submit to the Holy Spirit seeking to speak through our time together and our reading together, our small group discussions together, to, to wonder what is it the Holy Spirit is trying to say to us through God's word, okay? Uh, and in many respects, it's not unlike a light, a beam of light heading into a spectrum, you know, into a prism, I should say, and then casting out from that prism what? A spectrum of light, right? And all the, the, the spectrum is inclusive of all that light, but it's different, and we need it to be different because we trust that the Holy Spirit is speaking through that spectrum of translation and interpretation. And thank God we have that. And thank God you are not relying on me. Whew, that's, that, would be a, that would not be a good thing. 
So, um, <clears throat> so turning to verse 2, the beginning of the good news of the Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written, Mark writes, in the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah is a very key, per, a very key um, book for Mark. Mark refers to Isaiah time and time and time again throughout his gospel. So we're going to be listening, and, and we don't know necessarily why. I mean, Isaiah was a very important prophet for the New Testament writers. There's a lot of allusion to the Messiah or to the suffering servant in Isaiah. Uh, and, and Mark refers to Isaiah a lot. But there's something interesting here. So as is written in the prophet Isaiah, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now, what Mark, when Mark refers to Isaiah... What, when you start to do the digging into these verses, verses 2 and 3, you discover that really only a part of these two verses actually come from Isaiah. Another part comes from Malachi. Another part comes from Exodus. Uh, Mark bunches all, all together and calls them the words of the prophet Isaiah. Not an uncommon method that the gospel writers employed. Sometimes they would put together a collection of Old Testament verses and just give reference to one of the writers as sort of being responsible for this. That's what Mark does in this. Um, the good news begins with this voice in the wilderness, this messenger who is being sent ahead of us, who says, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. It's an interesting thing that we see in Mark's gospel that the, the good news begins, unlike Matthew, unlike Luke, the good news begins out in the wilderness. Because I think part of what Mark wants to help us to remember is that the story of the people of God usually begins in the wilderness, right? Uh, when the people of God are rescued from bondage at the beginning of the book of Exodus, where do they go? They go into the wilderness. The beginning of their good news begins in the wilderness. Forty years of being in the wilderness. When the people are in exile in Babylon, these verses from chapter 40 of of Isaiah, you know, part of these verses from chapter 40 of Isaiah talk about in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. It is a, an announcement that the people of God are being delivered from their captivity in Babylon and they are going to be brought through the wilderness on their way back to um, their homeland, to, to, uh, to Israel. So, um, so when we listen to the beginnings of the good news, we shouldn't be lost on us that often the good news begins in the wilderness. Now, if we've ever had wilderness experiences, and we've all perhaps had wilderness experiences in one way or the other, to some degree or the other, perhaps you feel like you've had a chapter in your life where you've kind of just been adrift or been lost, or perhaps you have been abandoned, or perhaps you've had some a really difficult chapter in your life, and you feel like you have been taken into the wilderness, Mark is here to say, don't forget that for the people of God, that's usually where good things get their start. Now, it's not to say that we're here to, oh, well, that's, you know, we should go looking for wildernesses. 
Um, but that this God who is always seeking to bring about a new thing is, is perhaps bringing about a new thing even in the wilderness. That there is maybe something yet to come. Um, and so the gospel begins in the wilderness with this interesting fella named, anybody know? John the Baptist, or in my translation, it's called John the Baptizer. Before we get to John, though, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. You know, there's a long time in my life where I thought that really what, what this voice in the wilderness is saying was that simply prepare the way for Jesus to enter the stage. And I think to one degree, that's really what the voice is saying. This voice from the wilderness saying, prepare the way of the Lord. In other words, Jesus is on his way. But we can't lose sight of the fact that we are to prepare for the way of the Lord. And that what we're preparing ourselves is that this one who is about ready to step foot onto the stage in Mark's gospel is saying, is going to say to us, follow me. I have a way for you. Prepare for this way, this way that I'm planning to take you. Um, <clears throat> so we are preparing for ourselves for this person to come into our life who's going to say, I have good news for you, and it, it is an invitation to begin walking down a certain path, to begin walking down a certain way. Prepare the way of the Lord. In the wilderness, the wilderness is a place of new beginnings. So, beginning at verse 4, John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And people from the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed, the one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So in Mark's gospel, the, the first person that kind of stands out onto the stage is John the Baptist. I've talked in previous studies about you know, how John the Baptist is this guy we just don't really know what to do with. Like, yee, who is this guy? And, um, you know, at Christmas time, you always you see, you see Christmas cards that have got, you know, the beautiful little creche and the shepherds and the wise men. I have yet to see a Christmas card with John the Baptist on the front. <laughs> you know, repent, believe the good news, you sinners. That's not what we send out at Christmas time. But in a very real sense, especially in Mark's gospel, this is the beginning of the story. Now, well, you've, we've noticed already, right, that Mark is not interested in the birth of Jesus. He doesn't tell us about the birth of Jesus. If all we had was Mark's gospel, think of what Christmas would be like. Holy smokes. We just got John the Baptist. Walking around like, mm, you know, 
probably no gifts being given, you know, da, 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 because we don't have those other stories. But, so, but Mark is here to say, oh, the beginning of the good news begins with this guy wandering around in the wilderness saying, um, inviting people to come to receive a baptism of, the re of repentance for what purpose? For the forgiveness of sins. The good news in Mark's gospel begins with forgiveness. Um, we oftentimes, when we think of John the Baptist, we think of repentance and period. Well, you know, John's going around saying, repent, repent. And uh, we kind of you know, think of this crazy figure walking around the streets of downtown Sarasota saying, repent, repent. But the whole purpose of John's ministry is to invite them into the forgiveness of sins so that people can be freed to live the good news. Good news happens through the forgiveness of sins. And the forgiveness of sins is an invitation for then us to repent, to say, actually, you know, you don't really want your sins forgiven if you think that the life that you're living is perfectly fine, perfectly acceptable. Like, why would I ask for God to forgive my sins? Because, you know, he's lucky to have me on this team. Instead, John's invitation, this baptism for, of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, is an invitation to say, if you are honest enough with yourself, you know that you've got stuff. you got stuff. And certainly, um, those who were coming out to John from Jerusalem were likely not necessarily the center of the religious hierarchy, but probably more those who were coming out to John the Baptist were those who felt as if the religious hierarchy only knew them as sinners, only knew them as those who didn't measure up, only knew them as those that didn't follow the law, only knew them as people that you know, just didn't have their act together. They weren't you know, as righteous as the leaders of the, of the temple. And so therefore, John is out there in the wilderness and says, guess what, I've got good news. You get a brand new start. You don't have to live in that world of, you know, not measuring up. You get to be freed into a new chapter of life. You get to leave that behind, and you get to live in this grace that is being brought to us by the one who is soon to enter the stage. That's powerful. That's a powerful beginning of the good news. That the beginning of the good news is, guess what? You have a second chance. Guess what? You have a new life that you can live. And that invitation, that, that invitation for, for, to forgiveness and grace is what propels us to repentance. You know, oftentimes we get that turned around and say, you know, sinner, you, you know, you don't measure up. You're a lousy, you're, you know, sinners in the hands of an angry God, and, you know, you should be scared out of your mind because God's going to throw you to hell. Therefore, 
hear the good news. Instead, the good news begins with, guess what? God wants you to have a new chapter in your life. And all it takes is for you to repent. Repent means turn around, right? Turn around. Um, you can't keep going down the same path and, experience, keep, and, and think that you're going to experience the good news. You have to stop, go back, and choose another path. Repent, hear the good news, your sins are forgiven, and we can begin again. That's what John's message is out in the wilderness. And, and, he, and, uh, and what Mark wants us to see and hear is in verse 6, Now John was clothed with camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. Somebody that you really want your daughter to bring home. Um, so what is Mark telling us about John? Well, if we look at 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8, we hear a description of Elijah as a hairy man with a leather belt around his waist. So what Mark wants us to do is to connect the dots between what had been um, understood in Judaism that when the Messiah came, the Messiah would be... Uh, preceded by the return of the prophet Elijah. And so Mark, in the writing of his story, describes to us this, this John the Baptist out in the wilderness, and he's wearing camel's hair. He's got a leather belt around his waist. And for those that are familiar with the story of Judaism, they say, well, that, that's not, doesn't that sound like Elijah? And that's what Mark wants them to do. Like, oh. Okay, so this Messiah, there is actually a figure, an Elijah-type figure who is preceding the Messiah, and that is John the Baptist. He's giving us those clues to sort of help us to see that Jesus is actually a, an, a, a character in the unfolding story of God's people, and we have this Elijah figure who is pointing us to Jesus. Um, and, and this Elijah figure is very much, understands very much who he is in relationship to this, up, this upcoming Messiah. Because John talks about how he is not worthy to stoop and untie the thongs of his sandals. I am here not to compete with this. I am here in order to point to this new Messiah who is making his way onto the stage. And... <clears throat> And it's this wonderful, I think it's John 3.30, a wonderful verse in John's gospel where John the Baptist appears and he points to Jesus and he says, he must increase and I must decrease. Well, in Mark's gospel, John the Baptist decreases very quickly because this is the last we hear of him. Um, he, uh, well, we, we hear about him being rested in a couple verses down the, down the road here in this chapter. But John the Baptist is basically here to say, look at him. That's the guy. I'm not worthy to stoop and untie his sandals. He will baptize, I baptize you with water. Oh, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And we're going to learn a little bit about the Holy Spirit in a little bit. 
All right. Wow, I, whew, I got through eight verses. This is great. <clears throat> we'll see if I can get to verse 15 here. Um, <clears throat> so in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. So, okay, we've got the, we got the stage manager saying, be prepared, someone's coming. And in Mark, everything happens quickly. One thing happens after the next thing, happens after the next thing. He uses this word, um, uh, make sure I get the right, euthys, E-U-T-H-Y-S, euthys. Euthys is a word that Mark uses over and over again. It means uh, immediately or just as. So just as this happened, this happened. Or this happened and immediately that happened. Um, John's gospel is very concise. He moves the story along very quickly. You know, in Luke's gospel, we have these wonderful stories, and, you know, Jesus is teaching, and we've got these parables, and Matthew's gospel, we've got this long sermon on the mount. We listen to Jesus teach for three chapters, and so on. Mark, no, no, let's move, let's move the story along. Let's keep it going, uh, because he's interested in helping us to see how the, the, the plot, remember we talked about plot last week, the plot of the story, how it's unfolding. Because for Mark, the plot of the story is the key element. So in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, the beloved with you, I am well pleased. And I would be pleased if someone could find me a little napkin so I can wipe my nose. I'm just, my nose is running. Thank you very much. Excellent. Thank you. Um, thank you, Matt, for turning the mic around while I sneezed. And let's give a big hand to Matt Liddell, who is our uh, person who's running the sound and the video and all that. Yay. Matt is indispensable, um, so we're grateful. So in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. The, the interesting thing about Mark's telling of the story of Jesus is that the, um, the, the advent of Jesus is not found in the temple. It's not found in Jerusalem. It's not found in Bethlehem. It's not found in the seat of Rome. All of the advent of Jesus takes place either in the wilderness or in the back hills of Galilee. Interesting thing that this Messiah, this good news, this, this opportunity to make our way into a new chapter begins out in the remote areas. That God's doing a new thing, but he's not doing the new thing where you think he's going to do it. How much time do you spend hearing or reading stories about what's happening in Washington, D.C.? I bet we're, if we were all honest, we spend way too much time reading and listening to stories about what's happening in Washington, D.C., or what's happening in the, uh, on the stock exchange in New York City, or what's happening in the capitals of, of the world. The beginning of the good news happens out in the middle of nowhere. I think the gospel is most lived in our hometowns, 
not in Washington, D.C., not in New York City, not in all the capitals of the world. We spend way too much time thinking about how the world is. We think the world is actually unfold. History is primarily unfolding in those capital cities. When actually the history of the gospel, I think, unfolds right where you live. Jesus of Nazareth, a back hills hick town in Galilee, comes from the hick town to the wilderness to be baptized. And this is where Mark is pointing us to, to say, this is the epicenter. I think the way we go about our lives from day to day in our hometowns, with our families, with our neighbors, that is the epicenter of the gospel. And we'll get back to some of that in a little bit. Jesus came from Nazareth, and, um, and he uh, submits himself to the baptism of John in the Jordan River. Um, so clue number one, who is the Messiah? Who is this who is the Messiah of God? Oh, th this is the one who, who, though was in the form of God, as his first move, decides to submit to the baptism of all the others who are coming from Jerusalem and Judea. Does he need to? Does he need to repent? Probably not. But nevertheless, he participates in the baptism into which we are all invited. Um, as a sign that God has chosen to become that humble, that vulnerable, to be with us. In Matthew's gospel, it's you know, Emmanuel, God with us. Well, in Mark's gospel, we don't hear that language, but we see it in Jesus submitting himself to the baptism to which we are all submitted. And just as he does that, just as he you know, humbles himself to that level and becomes one of us, submits to the same baptism in verse 10, and just as he was coming up out of the water, that's that just as, that's, as he was coming out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven you are my son, the beloved, with you I am well pleased. We can't lose sight of the fact that is when the, when the son of God, Jesus, submits himself to, who, to our level, welcomes the baptism that we all receive, that the heavens open up and the spirit descends and the voice is heard from the heavens that says, this is my son, the beloved, in whom I'm well pleased. It's in this moment where we begin to see a little bit about who Messiah is, and not just Messiah, but who God is. God is first. We hear God's voice first. We see the spirit descend first. When Jesus submits himself, gets put his head into the water and raised up. And that's the moment where we see this is who God is. Wow. That's, I mean, it gives me shivers when I think about 
what Mark is trying to teach us about what does God look like. God looks like this. You know, we want God on the throne. We want God, you know, we want God to perform all these kind of razzmatazz. You no, know, first thing we see God doing, he submits himself. And we hear the voice, and we see this, and we see the spirit, and we see the persons of the Trinity all forming in this moment as the beginnings of ministry, as Jesus' ministry begins. And it's powerful. And it's the first clue to this way of Jesus, this first clue as to what is Jesus inviting us into. It's a life of humility. It's a life of submission. It's a life of, of being at one with each other. Wow. Um, I... Um, Mark tells this so succinctly, but he tells it so beautifully. And remember, Mark's gospel, as we talked about last week, is the prototype for all the other gospels. Well, at least for Matthew and Luke. It's the prototype for Matthew and Luke. So Mark is introducing this plot for others to say, oh, that's the plot. That's the story. And uh, and then they add to it with with their own gospels. Verse 12. And the Spirit immediately drove Jesus out into the wilderness. Well, what the heck? I mean, you know, he's, he's on the stage, and now all of a sudden the Spirit wants Jesus back into the wilderness. The whole gospel begins in the wilderness. Jesus is baptized in the Jordan River, significant body of water for the people of Israel. It's what they cross over to get to the promised land. It's that, it's that symbol of crossing over. It's that symbol of turning around. It's that symbol of going to a new place. Jesus is baptized in the Jordan River. And then the Spirit, verse 12, immediately drives Jesus out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beasts, and the angels waited on him. So first move uh, after Jesus submits and hears the voice of God who says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Jesus, the spirit, we're told by Mark, it's the spirit who says, first stop, the wilderness. First stop, the encounter with the, the, um, the prince of the world. An encounter with the evil one. Messiahs must confront evil. There's some messiahs who run from evil. There's some messiahs that say, if you believe God, everything's going to work out fine. There's some messiahs that say, you know, if you believe in God, you'll become a millionaire. There's some messiahs that say, you know what, you don't, you know, you are the center of the universe. But this messiah takes into account the reality that there is evil in the world and he goes into the wilderness to confront the evil one. First move. And it's in the, it's in the wilderness where um, Mark says that he is either, the, the, word, the, the Greek word is, can either mean tempted or tested. He's either tempted or tested by the devil. Mark, in his very spare way of telling the story, doesn't tell us what those temptations are. Matthew and Luke do. Um, you know, that he was, you know, um, the devil, you know, tempted him to turn stones into bread and tempted him to throw himself off the temple and tempted him to 
bow down before him and you know, receive the, the kingdoms of the world. We don't want any of that in Mark. All, we, all Mark is concerned about telling us is that Jesus went into the wilderness and confronted evil. And this is a part of the way, right? This is the part of the way that we're being invited into to do battle with the forces of evil, to confront evil, to realize that that's a part of this world in which we live. Um, and, and that's not easy. Um, and we, um, we need a lot of help to do that. And we can, uh, and we, we will certainly be talking about that as we make our way. Oh boy, I'm on a roll here, people. Watch out. Um, he's tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beasts, and the angels waited on him. The angels, evangels, waited on him. And um, so Jesus is, uh, Jesus is being cared for in the wilderness, and he is with the wild beasts. Wild beasts is an image we get from Isaiah. Isaiah makes reference to the wild beast, the lion shall lay down with the lamb, so on and so forth. Um, and um, he is being attended to by the angels. Do you remember any story in the Old Testament where uh, a prophet is attended to by the angels? Or at least by an angel? Elijah? Elijah and uh, his running away from uh, Jezebel and Ahab. Um, he, uh, he falls, basically, he, he can't go any further, he collapses, and all of a sudden he's awakened by the angel, and the angel says, eat, and there's food for him, and he eats, and the angel says, you know, eat again, because the journey is too far for you. So we hear, so when we're reading this, we're hearing this allusion to Elijah, that um, this Jesus figure is at the rank of one of the great prophets of Elijah, who has angels attending to him uh, in his journey uh, in confronting evil, Elijah confronting evil uh, in his day uh, with uh, the wicked uh, king and queen. So, um, last couple verses, people, hang in there with me. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God and saying, the time is fulfilled the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. Um, somebody called this the gospel in cliff notes. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. In, in a very real sense, in this... Um, the summation of Jesus' teaching, it, it appears, first of all, it begins with the notation that John has been arrested. John's mission in Mark's gospel is now done. He has been arrested, and he has departed the scene. And, and what we hear is this echo of what, um, of what Jesus' ministry is going to be about. Jesus will appear on the stage after John has been arrested, only for Jesus to be what? Arrested. You know, this is, there's a, there's a, a consequence for confronting evil. There's a consequence in taking this journey. And for Jesus, it ends up, as was John, uh, in his arrest 
and execution, as was John, of course. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. Um, it, I was trying to think about you know, what's a good analogy for um, what I think um, Mark is trying to tell us in this summation of Jesus' teaching. And I didn't really come up with anything good except that I think back to um, the liberation of Europe. Those of you know anything about World War II, um, uh, you know, I, I can imagine, I've been to Normandy two or three times and, you know, stood on those beaches. And um, you just imagine what it was like um, for the French and for the Germans to look out over those cliffs into the, into the sea and to see the out of the mist appearing um, the British, Canadian, and American armada making their way. For some, that was, um, uh, that was threat. And for others, that was liberation, right? Um, Jesus appears on the stage and says, the time is fulfilled. Look, here comes the armada. Here comes, here comes the liberation. Here comes the good news. Here comes the being set free. Here comes the your sins are forgiven. Here comes the second, the, the new chapter of life. If you will just believe. And if you will put yourself in the position of receiving that in such a way that you repent and believe it, believe in the good news, that this way to which I'm inviting you is a way in which you will experience the good news of God, the grace of God in Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of our sins, and the invitation into a new way of life. Um, that's, the, that's the summation that Mark gives us as Jesus makes, gets himself onto the center stage and he begins his, uh, his journey, his ministry. So, um, I got through verse 15, Mingi. So, are you happy with that? Um, any questions at all that, that jump out at you um, getting ourselves through these first 15 verses? We'll keep, we'll keep making our way uh, f faster and faster, I hope. I have a comment. The people in those days were saying that Jesus was the second coming of John the Baptist. It's exactly right, and we'll find that a little bit later on in Mark chapter 8, where um, people are wondering, is this John the Baptist? Is this Elijah? Is this, you know, what, what's happening? Who is this figure that um, we have come to learn about? You're going to make me run, aren't you? Mark get a lot of his information from Peter. I'm sorry? Did Mark get a lot of his stories from Peter? From Peter. That's a great question. Yeah, we touched on that a little bit last week. Uh, where did Mark get his stories? There's some debate that Mark was a companion of Peter, and that uh, while Peter was in prison in Rome, that Mark took down the stories that Peter gave to him to comprise Mark's gospel. Um, uh, there are a lot of scholars that don't necessarily buy that. Uh, there's, you know, there's nothing 
uh, evident in the text that tells us that that was necessarily the case. There are others that believe that Mark may have known other eyewitnesses to Jesus' ministry and collected stories from there. There are other scholars that believe that, um, that, that basically the, um, the stories over the 30 years or so between the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus and when Mark wrote this gospel were stories that were collected by a variety of communities and that Mark part of what Mark's task was, was to gather up these stories, maybe some from eyewitnesses, maybe some from just simply generations of passing down the story, but uh, Mark was the compiler of those stories and put them together in a way that helped us to understand what Mark understood to be the plot of Jesus' ministry. Like, where is this going? What is he here to teach us? What is he here to show us? So. Um, so I can't tell you definitively who the source was or who the sources were, but I can only say that their scholars sort of have different opinions as to how Mark accumulated those, um, that material. So, yep, you got the answer for me? Ah. Right. Mark went with them, right. and he was kind of a secretary. Right. And so he recorded. Right. Right. That's a theory, um, but not necessarily historical. Um, yeah, there are some that believe that Mark, the, Mar the writer of Mark's gospel, was actually John Mark, who was a companion of Barnabas and Paul um, for one of their journeys. When they got set out for their second journey, um, uh, Paul and Barnabas had a, had a falling out because Barnabas wanted to take John Mark with him on the next journey, and Paul said, no way, he abandoned us after the first one, and, you know, he's persona non grata, one of those sort of, you know, blots a little bit in the story. Um, so we don't know for sure whether this is the same Mark as, uh, as the one who accompanied. Uh, Barclay, I think, makes that point, but um, we can't say that for sure. Yep, one more, Steve. Um, I'm just curious if there were any other examples so profound as the opening of the skies, descending of the Holy Spirit upon um, John, that it, it just seems very dramatic. Very dramatic. And is there any place else in the Bible where that occurs? Uh, I don't think as dramatic as that. There are certainly references in Luke and Matthew about the baptism of Jesus and the voice coming. But uh, I think Mark is the one who basically uses that language of the heavens being torn open. It reminds us of the temple, the curtain in the temple being torn in two upon the death of Jesus. Uh, I think mostly what we want to take away from this, it's almost apocalyptic, right? It's almost like a revelation language where the heavens are torn open and God's being revealed and the four horsemen of the apocalypse come bounding out and all those kinds of things. I think it's, way of, it's a way of, for Mark to tell us, to, to give us the image that this is a cosmic event. So while those who were there alongside the Jordan River are watching this young rabbi walk under the Jordan and be baptized by this you know, John the Baptist guy, they're watching it and saying, hmm, that's interesting, you know. 
what Mark wants us to hear and see as readers is that actually what they saw as something relatively commonplace is a cosmic event. The heavens are being torn open here. God is, God is in, encountering his creation in this moment. And we, so taking us back to readers for the first time of the gospel, taking us back, if we can put ourselves in that place, say, whoa, that's something. It's like, this is kind of like science fiction. You know, it's like, whoa, it's kind of, um, any of you ever see Close Encounters of the Third Kind? I date myself when I say Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Um, you know, where, you know, the aliens come and whatever. Um, and, you know, for those that experience this in encounter of the third kind, it's life-changing, right? It's life-changing. And it's, it's disruptive. And it's as if the heavens are breaking open and this new being, these new beings are coming. Well, in a very real sense, Mark wants to paint us that picture like, you know, you, you see a rabbi walking into the, into the river and getting dunked? Oh, no, 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 no. There's something big going on here. The heavens are opening up. And, and the, the universe is now starting to tilt onto a different axis, um, which is pretty wild, right? Pretty, pretty amazing. And hopefully we'll stay in that amazed spirit as we continue um, into the rest of this chapter, which is your homework. Read the rest of the chapter. You say, well, we did it last time. We'll do it again. Um, <laughs> and uh, uh, you, you, never, you, know, you can never get too much of the Bible. But we'll uh, try to make our way through the next part of the chapter, the rest of the chapter next time, and, um, and then we'll proceed at a more uh, brisk clip as we, but this, in, this opening stuff is really, really important because I think it sets the stage for the rest of the story. So, all right, let me pray for us. Thanks, oh God, for your love for us. We thank you for uh, this great story. We are grateful for how you uh, have come to be with us and pray that we may welcome you, um, this good news that may not feel like good news, such that we can begin to uh, journey with you down that path to which you have invited us. So uh, we are grateful for your spirit speaking to us and pray that you, we will continue to be open to what your spirit wishes to say. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, everybody.